You are listening to Nerd Best Friends, a podcast that covers the nerdy conversations you're already having, or wish you could. It's the nerdiest thing you'll do this week. Welcome back to another episode of Nerd Best Friends. I am Annalise, and I'm here with my best friend, Rob. Hey, it's me, Rob, your best friend, your super nerd, and your podcast host. Nerd Best Friends can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe and follow us now. Support our podcast by clicking subscribe or follow on your devices and find us on Patreon or Venmo for more support options. This is episode 49, and on today's episode, we are diving deep into the world of cult classics in pop culture. We'll be sharing our favorites and reminiscing about the moments that made these cult classics unforgettable. But first, what I like about it. Hey, Annalise. What's up? All right, for this episode, what I like about it, I chose miniature agnostic games okay miniature agnostic games are great for nerds like us who are continuing to collect and gain a giant collection of miniatures in all kinds of different genres whether they be your high fantasy miniatures your sci-fi miniatures your miniatures that you have in these board games that you painted up and really you only use them every once in a while because they were in this board game but you got all these monsters and all this kind of stuff miniature agnostic games are games that they sell a rules system and that's it they're not a miniature company or they're not okay. trying to sell you pieces of plastic, right? For instance, biggest tabletop company in the world, Games Workshop. They right, make course. their bones selling miniature. Well, they make money selling miniatures and books because they come out with a new edition every three years for all their different <laughs> of games. Of course. Of course. But they really make it by selling the miniatures. They're a miniature company. They make amazing high quality models. Your board games, your luxury board games that have your miniatures in it, they're selling their rules and they're selling their boards, but they can sell their products at that higher luxury price because right. they're full of awesome looking miniatures yes. and stuff like that. Right. So there's always that kind of barrier. Or on a place like War Game Vault or DMs Guild or wherever, for like 10 bucks, you can pick up a PDF of somebody's game. Their rule set that they came up with, whether it be all kinds of different genres. I mean, and everything is on the table when you start looking into this. It could be post-apocalyptic America. It could be alternate past World War II European. It could be high fantasy, low fantasy, science fiction in space, science fiction underground. Like whatever ideas folks have, they can create a game around it and they make it miniature agnostic, meaning they're not trying to sell you miniatures. They don't have sculptors and designers and factories yeah. in China and all this kind of stuff. It's just use what you have. This game is about dudes with machine guns running around fighting slimy monsters. So go into okay. your collection, okay. find some dudes with machine guns and some slimy monsters, you're good to go. So everybody's experience will be a little bit different. Everybody's tabletop will be a little bit different. And that's fun. It's fun to use what you have. It's fun to get on things like like the Facebook pages and groups and stuff for those games oh, yeah. and share your pictures. This is how yes. I did it. Well, this is what I'm using. You know, yeah. There's a community aspect there. It can be great for the new or younger hobbyist who has limited 
miniatures and stuff like that. It's also a great, on the other side of that, on the other end of that spectrum, it's great for folks like us or folks like me who have a million things and don't know what to do with them, <laughs> right? Because I just have models and models and models, but maybe they'd be perfect for this. Or maybe this is a good excuse to take out my exacto blades and start chopping heads off people and chopping arms off things and this one and that one to start swapping things over. So like, cool, I'm going to chop the head off of the machine gun guy and put a anthropomorphic, you know, put a rabbit head on him. Now he's an anthropomorphic soldier and whatever the genre might be. So it gives a, that opportunity for kit bashing and modeling. It gives opportunities for people who may be limited on what they're going to do. It opens up a little bit more of the imagination instead of the games that are very structured where it's like, these are our rules. If you want to play with this army, you have to buy this kit and paint right. it this way and stuff like right. that. So I think miniature agnostic games are absolutely wonderful. And there are millions of them out there. Whatever you're, you know, whatever you're lacking or whatever you're thinking about, you can probably find it. Whatever miniatures are sitting in your collection, I'm like, when am I ever going to use this, whatever it might be, this, <laughs> this, oh, you know what I have? I have a set. It's a little squad of mice. They're like anthropomorphic mice wearing power armor with big machine guns and stuff. Oh my gosh. They're awesome. I need an excuse to pay, to pay sure. these miniatures to play with them. I bet you I can find a miniature agnostic game that they'll be perfect for. That's funny. Mm-hmm. But it, So for, okay, so miniature side away for a second. Mm-hmm. When you say there's millions of these games, does that also mean that they are available for people who aren't as gamey? Like it's not like a six hour table or a continuous, right. you've got to play week after week. There's a variety of like, one shots are short games and longer games. I imagine that's the case for these. 100%. The idea being a, a lot of them will do that purposefully knowing, oh, you know what's a barrier to entry for a lot of these tabletop games? 45 page rule books. So we're exactly. going to simplify yeah. it. We're going to make it fun. You're going to sit down with your friends. They know that they're not, this isn't going to be like the number one game in the world that everybody's heard of. So okay. if we can make a game where you can sit down with your friend, you can build two small forces of the miniatures you already have. You can sit down with your friend, teach of the rules in 20 minutes, go play for an hour and 90 minutes and have a great time, then you're good to go. So when I'm thinking of things like one page rules or, or spell source and spell slingers, what's the other one? Space weirdos. Oh, rain and hell. That's another one that's very like, okay. There's okay. yep. just yep. tons of Names. stuff, right? Yes. Um, there's a company called Osprey Press that has so many of these. They have like a web store and a library and there's like hundreds of like little thin books you can buy with miniature agnostic game rules for like every yeah. genre. And then Wargame Vault is an online store where a lot of independent creators just put their stuff up and it could be, you know, full blown art and beautiful layouts and you pay 20 bucks or it could be somebody like, hey, I put this rule together. I think it's cool. Pay what you want. Three bucks suggested or whatever and get a ton of this stuff. And I've amassed a large collection, especially of PDFs for these games, just because I like looking through and be like, oh, how did they do their initiative system? Well, that's really different than anything else I've seen or what is the story here of turn up 28 what's that about you know all these kinds right, of things right. so it's, it's pretty fun the idea of it having digital versions and the pdf it makes the barrier to entry super low the fact that there are digital versions of this for people who maybe don't have space for all those minis and game room and bookshelves to be able to have it digitally i think is really cool that's what i like about that miniature agnostic <laughs> how about some nerd mail Nerd mail. 
I got some feedback from a listener who was talking about our Stephen King episode, and they were saying that constant reader, the idea of when Stephen King is uh, addressing the audience or putting things in his book, books that's addressing that, it's that idea of constant reader, someone who's keeping up with the lore, reading all the books, you know, a, a fan right. kind of thing, but instead of calling a fan, and she and she was saying, you know this, because that's the same thing with true believers, which is how Stan Lee addressed the readers oh, in his, yeah. like, Stan and soapbox and like all the editorials and and when he would answer mail and stuff in the back of the comic book. So when you go to the back of your Spider-Man cover, it's like, hey, true believers. And even when he would have, when he would get a chance to be on TV and, and on interview shows and stuff, he would always address those Marvel fans, those people reading the comic books as true believer. I didn't connect the two, but that's great. And they would have been right around the same time. I wonder who did it first. Ooh, that's a good. Well, I don't know. Maybe I mean, we're Stanley, talking sixties, early seventies for Stanley. It just depends on when he did it first. Right? I th- pretty didn't... early because when okay. he was writing Stan's soapbox, it was because he was in it, like still writing comic books, oh, which I think was touché, pretty early on. Touché. So yeah, Stanley. But yeah, thanks, Mister Juliana. That was a great. Yeah, thanks a lot. I also got some feedback on our Stephen King episode, and you know, we're talking about cult classics today. The Dark Tower, absolutely in. Bookland is a cult classic. Stephen King has some really great stories about things that are integral to the storyline and fan mail that he would get. And I'm going to forget the exact reference, like rabbits or something, because of course I haven't finished the series, so I don't know all the ends of the Dark Tower. But someone sent him a, you know, kind of a, if you don't finish the Dark Tower, then the rabbit dies, like a fake drawing of a, you know. Okay. I mean, it's, it's Interesting. just, he's, he's received so much mail and there's actually this like whole almost cult classic behavior behind a group of people where this may have been the only Stephen King they've ever written, but they're so passionate about this series of books that oh, because uh, the genre is different kind of than the the regular than stuff, his right? normal like horror books, right? So the the feedback I got was, you know nothing about Stephen King if you haven't read The Dark Tower. Like people are passionate about it. Come on, nerds, so, let's go. Yeah, I love it. I loved it. It's the same kind of thing that that. It, when you read or hear Stephen King talk about it, he's talking about these people who are deeply, deeply involved with the Dark Tower series. So, no, I I, I still call myself a, a, a constant reader. I'm a big fan of Stephen King, but the Dark Tower is just not one. Like, it's hard. It's rough. I'm still on the second book. How long ago did I finish the first? Way beginning of this podcast season, I had finished the first. I'm struggling to finish book two. So, yeah, take that, you fake nerds. Yeah, it is what it is. <laughs> you know, Dark Tower lovers, Stephen King lovers, we have a Venn diagram and the middle of the Venn diagram is much larger than we choose to say. Thank you, listeners, for writing in. Keep it coming. Let us know how much we tick you off in the middle of an episode. So our listeners, we love listener feedback. We're always checking our social media for listener feedback and these comments and all those kinds of things. Also suggestions for um, episode ideas and things like that as we're looking ahead to finishing off this season and looking ahead to next season. If there are nerdy topics or projects or things that you're thinking about that you want to suggest for us doing, we would be happy to have that to have that feedback. And I will tell you, nothing will make that dream a reality than if we get those comments and those suggestions on Patreon.com. Those folks are the VIPs who are, you know, really like they get our attention, right? We might see something on Instagram. It's like, oh, that's cool. That's a good idea. And then boom, right off, right out of my brain. But the people on Patreon, now (laughs) those people are invested and those are the people we're trying to keep happy. So don't forget patreon.com slash nerdbestfriends. Sign up. There's multiple levels for multiple rewards. It's a growing community. We look forward to seeing you and your comments there. 100%. 
Here we go into cult classics. We're going to talk about them here. And in particular, we are talking about cult classic films. That being said, Rob, what is a cult classic? A cult classic film is a film that is not your blockbuster film. It's not something that's super popular that everybody saw. In fact, it's usually the opposite. It's usually something that was, you know, it could be a flop or it could be just something that underperformed for one reason or, or another. It didn't make its money back or it made a very small profit and it wasn't exactly what the studio or the people creating it thought. Kind of a bummer. But after that initial release, it starts gaining this traction. Somehow fans find it and they keep it going. In the year 2024, this could be social media, people sharing things and those kinds of things. Back in the day when a lot of these movies we're going to talk about, it was word of mouth. It was sharing tapes. It was early lists of top 10 underrated movies you've never seen and those kinds of things. The BuzzFeed era might have these lists of movies that are good, but maybe you haven't seen. And so more and more and more people come up with them. The popularity of things like the VHS tape and rental places like The Warehouse and Captain Video and yeah, Blockbuster. Captain Video, geez. Right. Help this because now we're bringing movies into, into the home. The DVD boom later on uh, was still super popular. Like, get these movies and build your collection of your favorites or, again, rent them even on your streaming services and stuff. It's like, well, I never saw that in the theaters. I wasn't really interested or I was busy or this or that, but I'll give it a chance. Oh my gosh, this is really good. I got to tell my friends about this. Did you guys see this? That kind of thing. So it gains that popularity outside of its of its box office release. They're just the what makes them the moot the, the classics are they have this longevity, right? Fans get passionate about it. We know these movies because of the quotes, because of the costumes, because of the situations that we use as part of like the zeitgeist of culture in our everyday lives, kind of thing. And I think as we go through some of our favorites, we will demonstrate that. I agree with you. On everything but the mainstream success. And I actually really struggled in researching this episode. I really struggled on finding a solid definition of a cult classic. In fact, just a few places that I looked for just a distinct definition and not like an example list of them. Most of them said it morphs. And there's actually disagreement within the film community on whether or not that mainstream success is important. Because, and we'll notice with the movies that we both have on our lists, now they are mainstream. It's hard to tell whether or not that is. I'm, I'm I mean, we can get re- we get real into it, but like, I don't know that there is a mainstream anymore. I think no, that yeah, you have a good point on that. Between too, yes. the internet and Web 2.0 and social media, I think the monoculture is shattered. I think you make almost, a good point, yeah. Be, except for a very few things that can kind of break that boundary. Like that's not the norm anymore, right? Like the Barbie Oppenheimer weekend is not something that happens all the time. Like that was no, oh, no, they, they, they say, special. yeah, they say Barbie saved the film industry or the movie going industry, like saved movie theaters for a reason. That whole weekend just reshifted what going to the movies meant, right? Right. Nowadays, everything is a cult classic because we're not seeing it. Like if you're, everybody's in their own silos, right? If you're into anime, your Netflix, your Hulu is giving you more anime and you're living in that world. If you're into the real, the real housewives of, or the real blank of blank, your algorithms are feeding you that and you're in that world and looking at all this stuff. There isn't this idea of like, oh, well, that was really niche or that's a cult classic because everybody went and saw this movie but this was a little movie on the side it's like rarely does well, that happen I, I think anymore. it's it's a yes and no to that and and i think 
where you distinct that cult classic idea or the cult film idea is where it crosses over and it hits those Mm -hmm. other points that you made, right? I'm looking solely just at the box office, right? If we look just distinctly at money, we can determine a box office success on whether or not they at least made their money back. That algorithm and that idea of box office success is really based off of following the money, which is all movie studios want. Right. They just want a profit. They want to make their millions. They want to keep going. And, you know, granted, there's that percentage that say they want to make the best films and and blah, blah, blah. But I don't know that we see that in how we talk about movies anymore. That's what made that Barbie Oppenheimer weekend different is because their numbers were out there and they were both skyrocketing success. But it was it was actually the fact that people are seeing the movie, talking about the movie. I didn't see it till it was available on the HBO Max, right? Mm -hmm. But I could tell you about references and lines and quotes, not because I watched it and I'm siloed in there, it was my algorithm, but because it hit those other categories you mentioned. Yeah, it was unavoidable in that way that it didn't matter where you were, you could still go have fun with your friends on this weekend to do the thing and whatever and everybody had their meme of like dressing in their wildly like bright colored outfits and stuff like on my way to go see Oppenheimer right like that was the joke kind of thing so or a a teacher showed up anybody to do that yes right teacher showed up with a mug that said I am Knuff like like I get it and I didn't need to see the movie to know that that was you know a, a contextual theme throughout so what I got to was the cleanest definition that I can find I'm going to read it to you it says a cult film is any film that has a cult following, although the term is not easily defined and can be applied to a wide variety of films. And I think the way you described a cult film is all of that wrapped up. For me, it just eliminates the box, whether or not it was successful in the box office. It's whether or not there's a cult following. Because we we can call Star Wars a cult classic. It is a classic film because of its age. It has a cult following. But it did have what it considered at the time as box office success for a sci-fi movie. Now right. we can and look I at think- the billions it's made over time. But at the time... To me, the word cult means it's not in the mainstream. To me, the word cult means it's happening underneath your nose and nobody knows about it. One definition of cult could be dedicated, evangelistic, fanatical, right? Which is the Star Wars fan. But the other thing, the other side of the word cult that I'm thinking of is it's kind of secret. You kind of don't tell your friends about it. Like you're not, you go to your nerd convention and you dress like Indigo Montoya, but like you're not talking about the Princess Bride at work. Right. Like you are at Star, like with Star Wars. Well, you work at a very particular office that talks about Star Wars at work. That is not the reality for most people. <laughs> I do not have in my job. I do not have conversations about Star Wars with people because really? it's hard. Yes. I, like some of the nerds have made themselves known and we talk about it when we see each other, but it's not prevalent in my office. Like the, the office of nerds you work for that are all tech uh. people and all nerdy and all uh. males about your age, almost all males about your age that you're all kind of you're in your own human algorithm (laughs) all right yeah because i don't disagree with you on that on that secondary idea of cult but then my brain says well if nobody knew about it then it doesn't gain in popularity so it gets in the main that's why it's the cult following it's kind of underground like your cult but but the cult following out in the woods just as easily be everybody what you and i are talking about right now is exactly why there isn't an exact definition of it sure listeners will see i think all three of our we we did a Top three favorites, which mm-hmm. we'll talk about briefly, and mine even briefer because I know at least two of the three I've mentioned before on the podcast, all of them are well-known films. All of them. Right now in this day of time in 2024, they're all well-known films because they 
became mainstream. Yeah. But let's go into it. Why don't you start, Rob? You you just mentioned a reference to your number one. Perfect. So mine is already a cheat based on my own definition. So <laughs> Okay, good point. This is The Princess Bride from 1987. Fantastic movie. One of my favorites. One of my top three favorite cult classic movies, The Princess Bride. It is a fantastic movie. The Princess Bride had a budget of $16 million and the box office take was about $31 million. So that is a successful movie. It almost doubled its budget, which is kind of that mark that, like you said, kind of old school or classic thinking about Hollywood would hit. It's like, you got to double your budget on profit. It's a successful That's, film. So yeah. it's, it's right there. We can't yeah. say that like nobody saw it or that it was a, that it was a flop. It wasn't, but where it failed was that. It was supposed to be, or it was the goal of that movie was for it to be a blockbuster. It was going to be this high fantasy comedy that everyone was going to see. And when we look back at it and watch that movie, we realize like how family friendly it was, but somehow the marketing didn't do it, didn't activate people. It either only activated the people who were wanting to see 1980s high fantasy movie, which was nobody or no, it, was it was activating still the cult. just the people who were like really into comedy and they were like oh is that um billy crystal oh is that whoever whoever kind of thing yeah. and maybe they would go to see this movie but it wasn't this blockbuster it wasn't this yeah. high fantasy epic uh, you know that finally broke through and everybody in their family came to see it was just this mediocre rob reiner comedy and a comedy even is a stretch. The fact that they label it a comedy is problematic, but it's such a good film. I agree with you. This is easily one of the best films made at the time and for kids. It's just, it's so good. And it stands the test of time. Like, right. and, and I imagine maybe that you was showed it to Andrew. Absolutely. Like at was, a young age too. Yeah. Like we loved it. Yeah. And you know, when you're a kid, it's great because it's adventurous and it's mm-hmm. funny and the characters are very archetypical Yes. And you keep going. And, and when you're a kid, like it gets up to that big climactic finish where he says the swear word and it's so good. Like I, there's right. never been a movie that has built more towards the one swear word it has in it. Right. Yes. That, that movie does. It's perfect for kids. So yeah. So it, maybe was it a comedy? Was it an action film? Was it a fantasy sci-fi film? Maybe because it's none of those. But it touches on all of them. Maybe that's why it didn't get super popular with the marketing yeah. and like their big blockbuster weekend. But this was, I mean, everybody had this VHS. Everybody mm-hmm. had uh, mm-hmm. a copy of that in their big plastic box or whatever. And again, great for kids, great for family. Fun fact, Mark Knopfler of the Dire Straits composed the soundtrack for this movie. Oh my gosh. That's something I've never heard before. That's super weird, right? <laughs> really odd. <laughs> There's nothing dire straits in that movie, which makes sense because it's fantasy, but also. Right. But also it's not. Yeah. Weird. But great. There are so many quotable lines from this movie. It is absurd. Yes. I mean, that's where that longevity, like the cult classic is like, here we are almost 40 years later and you can be like in a conversation and be like, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And people know. Right. Or I yell out inconceivable a lot in my and then of course hello my name is Inigo Montoya you killed my father prepare to die that is classic that is that cold classic there are high school kids wearing t-shirts with that on it that's awesome that's awesome so many so many great lines and and the great late Andre the Giant oh yeah I remember marketing because like WWF was like a thing when we were that age 
And for uh, those of you who are younger, this is not the World Wildlife Feder Foundation. <laughs> this is what they used to call professional wrestling. It was worldwide yes, wrestling. Yes. World Wrestling Federation. WWF, like the Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant. That was a thing that they kind of anchored this. I remember seeing like Andre the Giant's in this new kids movie and everyone's like, oh. But yeah, it had a great cast. I mean, when you look at like a lot of those folks went on to do like cool movies and shows and indie oh, sure. I mean, Mandy Patinkin, what is the name of the Princess Buttercup character? She's like oh, a she's badass super famous. in she's her super older, famous. um, in her, uh, you know, Rebecca Romaine Stamos. Stamos. That's that isn't that who she is? She was in House of Cards, which we don't talk about anymore. Robin Wright. That's what I meant. <laughs> Robin Wright. Uh, Robin Wright from Forrest Gump and ooh, Unbreakable. That's a fun movie. I haven't thought about Unbreakable in a long time. You know, I was thinking Forrest Gump, but for some reason, I all I, the only name I could come up with was uh, John Stamos's ex-wife. I don't know why, but right. yeah, I was th- I was like, it's Jenny. It's Jenny. What is her name? <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's Robin Wright. She's had a great uh, career. Yeah. It had Billy Crystal in it in a hilarious role. It just, it has a lot of actors you know. If you haven't watched this movie because, you know, you're not old like us, it's got a lot of actors you know very young and just doing their thing in this very cool action comedy, family-friendly romp that's just quotable till no end and a great, great time. And I will say again, it stands the test of time. It, yeah, there's nothing kids, problem. Kids can watch it now. Yep. Yeah, yep. 100%. My first is one I've talked about maybe five or six times on the podcast. I've mentioned it as one of my favorite films of all time in the nerd watching in the 90s movies episode. The Stephen King episode, of course, I am talking about the Shawshank Redemption from 1994. If you haven't listened to any other episodes, this is based off of a novella by Stephen King called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. The rights for it had been sold place to place in the 80s. No one could quite make do of it. 1987 rolls around and Frank Darabont gets the rights from Stephen King for something like 300 bucks. Here's a fun story about that that I can't remember if I mentioned on the podcast. Stephen King held on to that $300 check, personal check from Frank Darabont, because no studio wanted to touch it, the story. There's only a little bit of difference between the novella and the movie, and that little bit of difference is how violent. It's much more jail violent, and that's probably why movie studios didn't want to touch it. But Oh, Dar- sure. Darabont buys it for $300. Stephen King holds onto the check. And when it blows up, he sends the check back in a framed little photograph that says, uh, in case he wrote, he writes over the check in case you need bail money mm. and sent it back to Frank Darabont. So he buys the rights in 1987. It takes him a bunch of time to get it greenlit and filmed and it flops. It right. makes way less than the cost. It's got a lot of, it's got a handful of big name actors for the time in it as well. And then it goes out on VHS. And all of a sudden, people are watching it at home. And then all of a sudden, there's a couple of Academy Award nods, including Tim Robbins for playing Andy for Best Actor. And there's a couple others. And then all of a sudden, once the Academy Award nominations come, it's re-released. And now it's made millions upon millions upon millions after that re-release a year later. But initially, not a popular film but so good that people were watching it at home and telling their friends, oh, here, go rent it from Blockbuster this weekend. It's really good. And then Academy Awards. And then I wonder if along with that, kind of idea of of it being cheap because nobody went and saw it and they wanted to get it out. And this VHS is how quickly it was available for licensing and running on television. Because when I saw 1994, 1995, that seemed late to me because I Mm. felt like I watched that movie a 
ton of times in high school because it was on TV. It was on like TNT. On it TNT. was on yep. the Channel 5 yep. afternoon movie. It was on, you know, whatever these channels were. Like, I remember it being on. Like, I've seen this movie in pieces a dozen times and I know yeah. I wasn't popping in a VHS tape. I know it was right. just, it was on TV and I was catching it and I would have said like, oh yeah, that was high school. So that would have been like 93, 90, 93 through 97 kind of thing. But you're saying it was still in theaters re-released in 95. Yes. So they must have really fast-tracked that out to television distribution as well, right? I imagine, again, with movie studios, you follow the money. I imagine once it started getting more popular, the Academy Award nominations come out, they re-release. And see, some of this is backwards too, because you can't, Some there's some rule, like you can't release it to VHS during Academy Award nominations. So the, the nominations must have come first, hmm. then it goes out on VHS, and then it got re-released. So I might just have my timeline wrong, and what I'm thinking was all through high school was really like, senior year and first couple years of college but yeah it might have been college it might have been like your first year of college right out of high school because it did go to tnt relatively quickly and it's still there it's still all over the place (laughs) and i will say you made me think if you or any listener has not actually watched this unedited for television front to back i highly recommend it Mm. it's it's one of those films where the pacing is just brilliant it's a pacing thing right force gump is a pacing thing any more or less in each of those eras we would lose interest in the film and the mm-hmm. pacing and it's just beautiful it's like a melody that ebbs and flows and i like frank darabont nailed it and i think of goodwill hunting same thing right yeah. a little too much of them being fast and delinquents would have been too much too much of him being super smart guy like it just ebbs and flows in this really passionate way that it's it's gorgeous if you've never done it front to back i don't um, think i have i don't think i have but i love a well-paced movie and and i fall on the side of a movie that takes its time and lets the scenes breathe a little bit and lets the yes. actors go it's one of those that in directing i learned that they play red's voiceovers as they're moving the camera so the actors are aware what the audience is hearing at the time. And and that's not common when you do voiceovers. Usually they film it and then the voiceover matches the script. The screen, right? In this case, they had him do all those voiceovers and they were playing them over loudspeakers as they were doing these big washing frames over this real prison in Ohio. Like, it's very cool. It, what a great help for the actors to understand, like, the gravity of that scene and, like, yes. how just hearing that, hearing, like, the music in the background, hearing that, that, that voiceover, I imagine is a great directing tool to let those actors know, like, oh, this is a serious face or this is a look out into the distance moment or this yes. is a walk slowly with my head up not a yes. shuffle with my head down uh yeah it's really great and also handfuls of uh repeatable lines in that as well i think that's true for all the movies i wish i could say list. that was the last time i saw andy dufresne like i'd say that all the time just put andy <laughs> dufresne as anything else like anything that happens it's like i wish i could say that was the last time i had to bail out this employee with a th- <laughs> email i'd like to say that but i can't get busy living or get busy dying the only yeah. man I ever met could crawl through a mile of sh- <laughs> walk out clean the other side. Oh, I gotta love it. Also popular because of uh, Morgan Freeman. Listen, yeah, I mean, Morgan, Freeman Morgan Freeman nails it in that movie. Yes. Just yeah. th- that's where the quotable lines come from. Me, it's all it's the Morgan. It's all Freeman his. Lines. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yes, yes. So, what do you got for your second favorite cult classic? Number two on the list is 1999's Office Space. 
Okay. Office Space is a movie that had a $10 million budget and brought in $12 million at the box office. Now <laughs> that expectations. is, uh, mm, <laughs> that is a failure, my friend. <laughs> what are you talking about? They made money. I mean, not they Hollywood did. money. That's not they making did. money. They did I better than breaking even. You're supposed to make your money back double, I believe is the uh, definition of a Hollywood success. But yes, it made, it made a little bit of money. I guess it was worth doing, but it became <laughs> worth doing more in the long run as people felt in love with this movie all of the relatable things about working in an office space with weird co-workers and this like random idea of being put together with people in this workspace that you spend a ton of time with that you may not have anything in common with except for the hardship of working for a miserable company this was ahead of its time right if we think about the workplace comedy, the workplace satire, the office, Parks and Rec, the IT crowd. These are things that are very popular now, but 30, you know, 20 years ago when this movie came out, it was a new idea. Like, well, what's so funny about going to work? What's so cool about this movie of people who work in an office? And it's like the satire, the look at what corporate America is like and just flipping it on its head and saying like, no, this is ridiculous. The things that are happening to all of us every day, I think is where where that has its long tail. And what's incredible about that is the things that are ridiculous and laughable and super, super annoying about working in corporate America then are exactly the same now. We can still relate. The technology has changed a little bit. The money amounts have changed a little bit with inflation. But like to the core of it, this movie still slaps. Anti-establishment, which was a theme. It's a theme that that's a theme that's been around forever, but in a manner, uh, you're right, that we hadn't seen really in movies or television. It's funny to think that this movie and The Matrix came out the same year. At the same time, yeah. Yeah. Well, and this was- Because they have the same by, message. Like, pretty much. Yeah. Anti-establishment in a completely different way. This okay, one was I've seen this by... before for next season. The Matrix and Office oh. Space. <laughs> We're comparing them. <laughs> we already did. The Matrix- What? Wow. All right. So this one's written by Mike Judge, who's famously known for Beavis and Butthead. And so that has that edge. Well, not yet at this point, right? Oh, no, no. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Right. So this was after the success of the Beavis and Butthead movie. And he writes this based off of a comic strip, I believe. A comic strip or a comic book? It's based on... Oh, it's based on his own cartoon series called That makes Milton. sense. I mean, yeah. you know, but Beavis and Butt has one of the first and only cartoon he ever came out with, right? I but, mean, he was and He has creative. a series apparently called Milton that wasn't necessarily <sighs> popular, but he had a, a series and based this movie off of space on that. And so we all know Mike Judge, which also, I think, lends to it being a little ahead of its time because realistically, Beavis and Butthead was ahead of its time. It was comedy that mm-hmm. was cutting edge for us at the time. It was because it was that idea of like, we were looking at ourselves, right? It took the idea of like, oh, these kids today, all they do is sit around like a bunch of morons watching MTV. And it's like, yeah, here's what that looks like. <laughs> yeah. This And it was speaking our language at the mm-hmm. time, for the most part. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we didn't talk about bungholes as much as they do, but. But we might have. <laughs> we could have. Well, we probably did more after watching Beavis and Butthead, but. Exactly yeah. right. This is a really yeah, good movie. I mean, this movie is another one that is still, I, I think, still holds up today. I think the the truths or the power that it's speaking to and about are the same as they are today. And again, just like Princess Bride, just like Shawshank Redemption, it's that super quotable yeah. movie, right? Yeah. Looks like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. That's from this movie. <laughs> 
And the whole thing about the stapler. Oh my gosh, running the stapler guy that is still just exists. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. And you yeah. think and like you'll meet people in your work life. You'll meet people, you'd be like, dude, that's like the stapler guy from Office mm-hmm. Space. He's gonna burn <laughs> this place down one day. And he's the he's the dodgeball guy too, right? He's the yes. oh, I watched the dodgeball tournament on ESPN eight the Ocho. That guy is great. And then just having that boss that the Bill Lumberg. Yes. What a perfect portrayal. Yeah. Um, if you could just go ahead and um, you know, come in this weekend, uh, that'd be great. Walks <laughs> away with his cup of coffee. I went to totally different with my second pick and went with Pee-Wee's Big Adventure from 1985. That was really good. That's a great choice. You know, and I didn't know this until I did research for this episode. This was Tim Burton's directorial debut. Really? I did not know that. So this was, I'll be honest with you. I don't know that I ever knew that Tim Burton directed this. And now that I I think about it. it, But as soon as you said it, I'm like, oh, that makes perfect sense. That tone makes total sense for for this movie. So this movie comes out after the popularity of Pee-Wee's Big Adventure or Pee-Wee, Big Top Pee-Wee. No, that's the movie. No, that's the sequel. It was Pee-Wee's Playhouse, but it was the HBO version before like the Saturday morning version that we saw. Right. Well, and, and this is following the popularity of the Saturday morning show after it went on HBO it was a little bit more adult themed then it was a Saturday morning kids show and it was popular enough that they make this movie oh okay is my understanding and then the and the movie did not do as well as the po- they expected it to but I, don't I believe know. it the, I mean that dude's weird of- it's got a whole weird Tim Burton vibe like yeah, I could see it not being mainstream. But it's quotable. People dress like Pee Wee Herman. After the death of Paul Rubens, uh, what was it, just last year, a lot of people came forward with how absolutely impactful this character Pee Wee was for being oddball and not mainstream and awkward and funny humor and just so much that made him different that kids and teens at the times were like, oh, I'm different too. And it's totally okay. The impact of this movie is way bigger than they could have ever known in 1985 when it was considered a flop movie, but they still made the second movie. Oh yeah. And it's still like it, it, I don't know if that they stand the test of time, but the character does. And the impact of this character, who's just a kind person, does. I um, mean, it will. I I bet you it will make you laugh out loud. In fact, I will challenge Andrew and his buddies when they're doing a movie night to watch this movie and see if they don't just like crack up at some of the ridiculous oh, things. In this movie. The scene where he's dancing to the tequila song. What Classic. is that? classic why i don't know but you know what neither do those motorcyclists and they they ended up loving peewee instead of killing him i always think of one of the long lost scenes is when he's making breakfast in the morning you remember this scene yes like he makes his breakfast and it's a smiley egg pancake and he has it talking to him and then he pours a load of cereal over that and then his alarm goes off and he gets up and leaves like i just there's just so much to it all these little bits and pieces it itself doesn't stand the test of time because of technology right Mm -hmm. like him searching for his bike and the way the manner he does it would obviously have different mechanisms in a today atmosphere but the idea of him finding his beloved bike that's been stolen and how special it is to him it's just all it's still like a kid could relate to it today and you are right i would not I would not take that bet with you because 100% mm-hmm. there would be laughter. All right, favorite quotes from the Pee Wee Herman movie. I mean, you have the, I know you are, but what am I? You have all the tag lines, right? For me. One of my favorites is 
tell them large marge sent you i do actually say that all the time yep (laughs) um (laughs) like when me and sarah are going to to, we're exploring a new restaurant here like tell you're gonna go put our name in tell them large marge Marge sent you (laughs) (laughs) there's also you know there's no basement in the alamo a brilliant brilliant right it's the only thing I know about the Elmo. And anytime I see friends on like Facebook or Instagram that are like, hey, look, we're visiting the El- Alamo. That's my comment. There's no basement at the Alamo. Don't forget to check the basement. Uh, there's oh, just, there's gosh. a lot. And for me, it's scenes. Like I really, I remember that breakfast scene. I remember when he finds his bike at a movie. Obviously they're saving money on sets here, but it was, he found it in a, in a movie studio for some like reason. A studio it was lot, being- yeah. Yeah, and so he goes and he grabs it and they think he's stealing the bike because they don't realize it's his and he's riding his bike through all the different scenes and stuff. Like, I mean, come on. What a perfect trip (laughs) through the 80s that scene is, right? And seeing those movies, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is still also the one where he cross-dresses, right? He dresses like a woman and he's in the car with a guy and there's like a checkpoint and I could be confusing it with with Big Top Pee-wee, but... I don't remember that scene. There's a scene where he has to pretend to be a woman because they're all the police are looking for him. And that might be the second movie. But Pee-wee's Big Adventure, not box office. It goes opposite of my whole point of view that it doesn't have to be box office, (laughs) but all the other things. And Tim Burton. Can't go wrong. Tim Burton as a heck. All right. So we got one more, Rob. All right. The top top movie, the top cold classic for Rob. Now, this is kind of funny because I was talking with guest of the show, Juliana, the other day. And we were saying like, oh, God, new best friends. The next one we're doing is cult classic movies. And she looked at me just just right away, like no hesitation. She's like, you just need another excuse to talk about the Iron Giant again. Constant listener. Thank you. Oh, 100%. Mark this on your bingo card everybody or when you're playing your drinking (laughs) game it came up again the iron giant from 1999 had a budget of 50 million dollars and it pulled in 31 million dollars at the box office absolutely want want (laughs) absolutely sad trombone on that one this movie was different this is a movie that early on was injecting computer animate computer generated animation into it the style of the art just it looked different than disney And this is when Disney was resurging in popularity on the coattails of the Lion King or whatever else may have came out in in the 90s there. And it looked different and it wasn't Disney. And I think it didn't grab people or it just didn't look quite right to the mainstream for whatever reason. And nobody went and saw this movie. So where that cult classicness comes in is through its long tail, right? Nobody went and saw what came out, but over and over and over again, word of mouth and stuff just kind of built this out to be no like this is a really good movie i think it's got two heavy themes that speak to people especially kind of nerd people that would you know later on go back and watch an animated movie about a giant robot who talks about superman all the time basically people like me it's got a big anti-war message and it's got the you are who you choose to be method uh message excuse me I think that speaks to people. I think it continues to be true. I think the fact that the movie is not set in a time, it is set in a time period. It's it's a period piece of kind mm-hmm, of the red mm-hmm. scare makes it so it's not like, oh, well, like you were talking about with Pee Wee's Big Adventure. It's like that might not hold up for some view, so for some viewers because, well, don't they have cell phones? Well, don't they right, have Wikipedia? Exactly. Like, don't yeah. they have this kind of thing? Because it's set in, you know, beatnik late 50s, 
Red Scare time, like you, you don't get any of that. And I think 1999, I think that was right around the time when DVDs were switching over. And that was, yes. there was a boom there of like, oh, well, you have to build your DVD collection or, you know, we're not, look how much better movies look now that we have DVDs instead of VHS. And that might have helped with some of that computer generated animation. It's like, oh, but look how good it looks on your new home television set with your DVD player kind of thing. Right. Might have helped that popularity go. Absolutely. And it's such a it's such a great, well written story. Oh, that it, I think so. <laughs> even not being a period piece, it stands the test of time. Right. It could be it could be plopped into and any time period it's so well written and but, i love that just nerds keep talking about it right like yes. i keep talking about it i love it probably one of the more famous places that you'll see it is in ready player one mm-hmm. it was in yep. the book and it was in the movie Great um, and i think if anybody was like oh like what's that giant robot there's that opportunity for somebody like me to be like oh, that's the iron giant want to come over we're gonna watch it i have it on an <laughs> hd dvd i will um, make you tacos if you come watch it <laughs> is that how i got you to come watch it no i haven't oh. i've not seen it i still haven't seen it shut up you know that no i talk about that i say that every time you bring up the iron giant i you thought we watched it. it in my house <laughs> what the <laughs> no i've seen so it's just like you say with shawshank i've seen bits and pieces of it throughout sure. time i have not seen the whole movie front to back Oh my gosh. And here it's I was planning. It's here I thought next year we were starting the Lord of the Rings uh chapter of our podcast, but apparently no, there's important business we have to get to. Oh well to be You changed. didn't watch that at my house? No. Now now you oh. what you may be thinking at the time when I first moved back and we we met like I think it was Wednesdays. I think before we thought it was mm-hmm. Fridays. Every Wednesday I was coming over, we were having dinner, watching a movie, and we had to start it super early so that we weren't up late. So right. Wednesdays before we were playing that D D campaign, I was coming over and watching all of MCU in right. timeline order, not release date order. And we made plans to do other things once we finished the MCU. One of them uh-huh. was Harry Potter. One of them was Star Wars. I think one of them was this. And then I was like, oh, I'll show you like Romy and Michelle's or something sure. as well. Like we just keep trading movies. So we made plans for it. And then March 2020 came. Everything shut down and we never went back to that list. So we did Star Wars separately. You like sent me the list. And since we were on lockdown, I just watched a bunch of Star Wars and Rebels and all that stuff before the last three films came out or the last two or the last one. I can't remember. Eight or nine before it came out, we had a whole Star Wars list. I think Iron Giant was on that list, and I think that's why you think that I came over and watched it. All right. Well, shame on you for not seeing it. <laughs> Spoiler alert. At the end of this movie, of course, the Iron Giant makes the ultimate sacrifice. Yes. And yes. he goes flying off into space to meet the nuclear missile that's going to destroy the town. Yes. And after the whole movie, he says the only line like that the Iron Giant really says a full sentence and looks at the kid and says, I am superman and then takes off into the sky and it's it's amazing yes i've i've seen like i said i've seen the whole movie <laughs> you did not spoil alert that is the hardest place to watch the film yeah oh my goodness okay well so mark your bingo card take your drink uh, iron giant came up on the podcast again i mean this is actually a we should we should market this episode with the bingo card annalise mentioned stephen king and shawshank redemption and rob mentioned iron giant and you mentioned sci-fi and mini paint and minis and tabletop gaming. And this would be a great nerd best friends bingo or drinking game if you are of age. Uh, yeah, my number third, number third, woohoo! Number, my number third, third choice 
is probably one that many of our listeners have never heard unless they're amazing and awesome like me. I am choosing also from 1999, ironically, Drop Dead Gorgeous. And I know I've mentioned this one on the podcast before. It is not a very popular movie at all, which is surprising because there's a lot of big name actors in it. Kirstie Alley and I'm going to blank on some of the other adult names because what I wrote down was young actresses who were in this movie around the time or just before they were really famous like Kirsten Dunst, Brittany Murphy, Denise Rich. Lots of actors in this film. It is Amy Adams is in this film. Amy Adams is in this film. Yes. And this is way before Amy Adams was known for anything. This is dark comedy. Mm -hmm. It is about a pageant in small town America where they're trying to nominate the winner of this beauty pageant in their small town to go compete in regionals and nationals. Murder and things happened, and I'm not going to spoil it for anyone who wants to see it, <laughs> but it is that dark humor, oddball in the same manner that is the state. And I say that because it was directed by Michael Patrick Jan, who is a former cast member and writer of the state. Now, this was not written by someone of the state, but it's that same tone. It's filmed as if it's a documentary, so it's a mockumentary format a little bit like this is spinal tap but it's just Mm. got a darker edge and darker humor to it i mean there are so many quotable lines from this but i rarely quote them for people because it's very rare to find someone who's seen this film so drop dead gorgeous if you are a dark humor fan this is a great one to watch if you are a fan of the state this is just like reno 911 and brooklyn 99 and all the things that these people went on to do this this is in that category with those as well it is that tone and tempo and humor of the state for me this movie is about the scene where they are doing they're in the beauty pageant and everyone has like a ridiculous diorama strapped to the top of their heads oh yes yes that is what that's that peewee herman monuments of america that's that yes monuments of america and somebody has the eiffel tower on their head yes it's incredible I, there's a, another really famous scene where they have white shorts because the, the theme is like red, white, and blue or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so they have these like blue and red tops and white shorts and they're practicing a dance that uses little like two foot ladders that have been painted blue, but the paint hadn't dried yet. So all of a sudden all over the, all over themselves as they're going through this dance routine is just getting dyed blue everywhere and the the judges are just sitting there cracking up and it's so good there's so many actors in this one and i highly recommend it to me it also has that dark dark humor tone like the house of yes which i didn't put on any of my lists i don't know if it's enough to consider it. it's real that's a really really deep dive in terms of a cult movie but the house of yes has that dark humor so if any listeners know the house of yes or the state and you have not seen Drop Dead Gorgeous, have at it. It's really worth it. Of course, there are many more. Like, I'm looking at this document, and I've got another five on my list, and you've got another more on your list. Like Like, eight or nine, yes. So this is one of those things where we can't sit here and, I mean, we could sit here and talk four hours about cult classics, but that is not how the modern podcast listener wants to deal with their commute. If you want some other ideas about where our other cult classics are, again, you're going to want to subscribe to the Patreon at that $3 level. This is where you get the newsletter. I would love to hear about your favorite cult classic, and we will definitely read that in the nerd mail section if you can get that into us.
It's that time again. What's the nerdiest thing you did this week? I think I hinted at it last episode because we were in the middle of NFL playoffs. But I'm going to say the nerdiest thing I did this week was flat out instinct guess my brackets for fantasy football contest, including you and some of our friends and winning so hard that I won before the Super Bowl even aired. You know what? First of all, screw you. Second of all, this is not the nerdiest thing you did this week because you didn't do anything dirty. You just poked your favorite team three times in a row so that you could get into the thing. I made a spreadsheet. I did research. I had conversations out loud in my car with Chat GPT about trying to pick my teams and trying to get the. I was looking up historical records of people who won road games and the weather patterns and who ha- who was in a dome and who wasn't. I nerded out on the thing you just i like the 49ers poke 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 give me your hundred dollars please i mean that would only account for half my bracket i was <sighs> still right on so many more things okay so the nerdiest thing i did this week is actually nerdy i say that i like random picked we each got two brackets right right the right. one that's like last place was when i did all the work to go oh yeah i think this team this team is favored over this team da, 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 da. Mm. like i did mm-hmm. that work and the bracket that won i did the opposite of all that except for the 49ers uh-huh. well so that's how i play that but you know truthfully what's happened to me a lot lately at least lately like in my life not just this year i like football so much i used to be like i just want to watch the 49ers that's it but Uh like i have it on when i'm working on the podcast on sundays or doing work in the nerd room or i'm playing a game in a nerd room i have i have games on so i'm listening to a lot Mm -hmm. and also because of that my algorithm on social medias is showing me a lot of like people who are talking about football because you know advent of all this media stuff people can talk about it a lot so I'm listening a lot, listening a lot, listening a lot. And the bracket that won, even though I'm saying like I did opposite of all those things, I went with momentum. Okay. Honestly, I thought about momentum. Like the Eagles had lost eight of their last nine games or something like that. Right. It's something, I mean, that's an exaggeration, but they had lost a ton at the end. It didn't matter how good everyone thought they were. They were not in a good place when the playoffs started. I'm not surprised that they lost. And I chose that they lost. Same thing with the Cowboys. Everyone was high on the Cowboys coming into the playoffs because they were winning, 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 winning. But if you look at all the teams that they played on that win streak, I think only one team, which was the Eagles, that had, they were over 500. They had won at least half their games. Everyone else was under. So it wasn't impressive that they were going on this steamrolling against teams because once they hit a hard team, they hadn't been challenged Mm-hmm. in the last half of the season. So to me, it was just momentum. And I think that's why all of those surprises for a lot of people led me to have such a big lead that it, it there was no comeback. But I will also say I was helped by the collapse of the MVP Lamar oh, collapsing yeah. in the playoffs again because it could have come down to the Super Bowl and whoever won the Super Bowl was going to win our... That's how, that's how I was thinking it was going to go, but no, yeah. old Lamar decided to be a choke artist and let us all down, but yeah. that's football. Yeah, there was an interesting thing because I also did fantasy football during the season, right. and when you do that, like, or when I did that, like, I wasn't paying attention to the teams. Like, I couldn't tell you who won the games. I just know what player beat me or what player did oh, well sure. for me. So sure. it's like, when it came to, say, the Eagles, I was like, well, Jalen Hurts is getting 30 points a game and like winning it for me. So they must be good. It's like, no, they, they're terrible. They, terrible. That dude just, you know, rushes a lot and scored a couple of touchdowns mm-hmm. for you. Yep. And that's also why I don't play fantasy, fantasy football is because I like the stories behind the games. Right. Mm. I like the drama behind the games. 
And you don't get that, I think, when you're watching whether or not a player does well. Because, you right. know, you, I can take Caleb Williams in USC this year. If you look at his stats and he was a fantasy NFL player, he would be winning you tons of points every week. But USC had such a horrible schedule this year. The offense is scoring 30 to 40 points a game and losing by 10. But still so, losing. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. So I went with momentum. And for me, I was super surprised. Even when I signed up, I signed up reluctantly going, well, you're just going to take my money because I'm just going to pick the Niners. I'm a homer. But yeah, I'll, I'll play. So it was a shock to me. I don't bring it up to brag. I bring it up because honestly, I was shocked. Just that first first weekend came about and it wasn't even close those first two weekends. And I was like, how is this even mm-hmm. how is this even a thing when I chose based off momentum and random thoughts? <laughs> I mean, so, it's not, that's why you get two brackets. I guess, I guess. But that was uh, me. What about what about you? So I did a couple of nerdy things this week as I was going okay. through with the new year had come and I hadn't really taken time to do what I do sometimes, which is over schedule and over plan uh, my yes. life. So I did that. So if you remember from like last season or maybe even earlier episodes, I would always talk about how like I build hobby time and stuff into mm-hmm. my week, right? Like every yes. other Monday is this D&D game and the every other Monday is something with the family and every Tuesday is this and every Friday is we right. Watch movies and shows like that kind of thing. But that has changed over time. Like it's just kind of changed and found ourselves maybe wasting some evenings, not wasting, but like not having a plan like, oh, we're all home. We could have done something today, but now it's over and we didn't play a game. And part of the 2024 uh, revamp is to play more games with people and stuff instead of just hobby, but actually use the stuff that I built and paint and all that kind of stuff. So I decided to look at that and revamp it. And sure enough, I've got like my two week nerd schedule all laid out and color coded and here look i'll even i'll even share it with annalise i get the visual get the visual so you gotta have your two-week plan so that every other like it rhyme of the frostman that's a rhyme of the frostman week but other wednesdays we're doing family night we got masks on saturday maria and i have like hobby time together now this year that we're trying to formalize and stuff like that so that was fun until i go through the calendar and try to work out how we could do stuff like that and just you know it's it's part of the nerd goals it's part of sticking to the schedule it's part of all that good stuff so i'm happy about that and the other thing oh part of that time i was just mentioning that we're trying to build in with like maria and i to hobby and paint and stuff back in the nerd room together is we're working on a collab now so uh, if you remember from i don't know two years ago the dungeons and lasers kickstarter where I got just yes. boxes and boxes and boxes yes. of all that stuff where they yes. just like over promised and delivered on all their stretch goals and stuff. We busted open a big box of terrain. It's like swamp terrain with all these like rotten docks and gnarled trees and bushes and dead fish and treasure piles and stuff. And so we're going to do a collab on that. We're going to share that one back and forth. So it'll have both of our different styles on it and that kind of thing, which we've never done before. So got some family time painting and projects and trying to organize the time so that we're efficient and spending as much time together as a family while we can, while we still have this teenager in the house. I want to make sure yeah. that we're, we're doing it right. Yeah, that sounds great. What, and what a great idea to, to use all of that Kickstarter minis to, to work on it together. I think that's really awesome. Well, we had done that before. The minis that made up the townspeople of Morsane for the game we played in Vegas, yeah. that, was a, that was a Dungeons and Lasers box, and ah. Maria painted about half of those as we were just okay. like cranking them out like crazy. Wow. How fun. 
Next episode, we bring back What Are You Doing? Join us as we reveal the nerdiest things we've been up to. From the pages of the latest comic book we're reading to the miniature worlds we're bringing to life. We'll share the triumphs and challenges of our latest D&D campaigns, television mounting, and all kinds of (laughs) things that have us. (laughs) I broke on Elise on that one. But we want to hear from you. In between this episode and next episode, please do write in with the nerdiest things you're doing. What have you been up to since the new year? Or how did you finish out 2023? What is the nerdy projects that you're working on? So we're going to share what we're doing. What are you doing? If you want to keep up to date on Nerd Best Friends, hit that subscribe or follow button on your device. We appreciate our fans, especially the ones that share our podcast with others and give us that five-star rating wherever they get their podcasts. We are at Nerd Best Friends on social medias, and you can send us a message through podcast at nerdbestfriends.com. These are the best and easiest ways to grow our nerd family. Yeah, thanks for throwing me under the bus there, Rob. I got to go try to finish mounting this TV. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. (laughs) All right. Until next time. Are you asking me or is that what you wanted to say? Which which would you rather? You want to go first? You want to go second? I don't, yeah, I can go first. I swear I talk with my hands. It's just going to be a thing, but it <laughs> derails us every time. This dumb Mac thing that keeps popping up, thumbs up and fireworks and balloons while I'm talking. I I'm love talking. it.